Welcome to The Spawn Chunks, episode number 56 for Monday, September 9th, 2019. My name is Joel Duggan, and joining me as always is my friend Johnny, but you may know him better as Pixel Riffs of the Bedrock Edition. Question mark? Uh, question mark. Yeah, no, I'm back in Java edition now. Uh, for, for my sins, yes, I did spend a week in Bedrock, and uh, we can talk a little bit more about that as we do our quick login here, because I have opinions, Joel. Um, but, <laughs> you don't but perhaps, say. But perhaps not the opinions you might think. I had a, an interesting time in Bedrock edition. Um, let's, let's roll into that a little bit later. First of all, how about you uh, fill us in on what you've been doing in Minecraft this week? So I, uh, as we mentioned a little bit in the pre-show, uh, which if you're a patron, you can go listen to the render distance and hear me talk about uh, Hurricane Dorian, uh, as well as uh, Chronicle, a World of Warcraft book that I read in the dark <laughs> by candlelight, actually. It was actually quite, quite, quite <laughs> yes. fitting. Um, Atmospheric, yeah. Yeah, so that's available to our, our Patreon members. But uh, for my uh, Twitch viewers, I was streaming. I did two streams last week. I fit in a weekday stream, which bewildered everybody. <laughs> uh, and then I was cut off halfway through my weekend stream when I lost power during the hurricane. But I was working once again on the fortress farm and things are really starting to come together now because I have, as I mentioned last week, I have the redstone for the collection system and I have the uh, design for the shulker box loaders all picked out. And so on stream, what I was doing, I was building the shulker box loaders. I was trying to plan out what I was going to do. I started to remove the sand that I dropped down into the lava to block everything off and started to put in the glass. So we now have like, you know, flowing lava walls. And so there's a lot of the, the look of the farm is really starting to come together. Uh, I'm itching to unveil the top of it i want to put a glass box around the top so that when you approach it you can actually see the farm as opposed to this ugly protective netherrack box that i have currently yeah, yeah. um so it was cool because it, it gave me a, a lot of chances to talk to the chat room because you're just removing sand and placing glass and just kind of like doing a lot of not mundane but like fairly straightforward tasks uh in in the in the world but uh, as i was going over some of the shulker box loaders and deciding where to put a loader and where not to for example i'm not going to load wither skeleton skulls into a shulker box that seems silly i'd have to fill mm -hmm. up an entire box before i get access to them <laughs> which is dumb yeah, um, yeah. so that they're just gonna be straight up in a barrel and and that's fine um, but in the process of doing all that i realized that not only can i not filter out the um what's the the, the non-stackable items because yeah, like the gold, red gold swords and stuff like that yeah. yeah so i can't filter out the gold swords to smelt them i can't filter out both the gold swords and the stone swords to remove them because of the way that the filter system works everything would have to be going through a hopper as far as the uh, distribution line would be concerned for the filter for non-stackable items to work that's not the case. They're not going through hoppers. They're sliding around on ice, right? So my filter hoppers are the ones that explode or are, are exposed, not the uh, pipeline hoppers because there are no pipeline hoppers. So straight up, I just can't do it. So golden swords and stone swords have to basically go around in circles until they despawn. There's no other way around it. Yeah. Um, and that means that all the work that I did to create this like L-shaped, uh, sorting system is moot because i don't need two or three filters on the left hand side i don't yeah. even need one i can fit the arrows in on the other side and just have it go in a box so i was like all right well <laughs> so i felt kind of <laughs> dumb i learned a lot like i learned a lot about how to take the observer pistons sticky uh, slime block 
pushers and redesigned them so that they worked with how I wanted to, to work them. So I did learn yeah. a few things, but ultimately I'm going to have to, I think, rip out an entire section. And that's fine because it's not really, it's kind of an ugly part of it anyway. It doesn't look like it makes a lot of sense, but it also has ripped out some of the fun because I wanted to have the swords and the golden swords and the arrows be like spit out into big pools of lava, you know, yeah. very dramatically. Like, we don't need this, you know, look at this. I'm wasting stuff, you know, <laughs> and yeah. I can't do that because <laughs> it's all just kind of like, it's just not possible or because it would mess up the other items because the whole purpose of the things going around in a circle is that if your system receives too much stuff then the blaze rods that don't get sorted on the first pass will just get sorted on the next pass yeah if i had the non-stackable item filter in there the blaze rods would just drop into it even though even though it was it would be looking for a, a um an item that would be doing two it would be look it would be scanning for an item that would be a, a, a signal strength of three because they're less than three they would just drop into an unlocked hopper yeah right so i was like ah crap so all my all the fun stuff i wanted to do is is no longer happening so with that discovery i switched over and started to work on design so if you're going and looking at the vods uh you'll see me switch over and start to remove a lot of the stone slabs a lot of the a lot of the sand and start to put in this glass box and i've decided to keep the nether crossroads so i'm going to build this farm as if it's been appropriated and is now hanging on to the crossroads so i'm building in like arbitrary supports that are just there to look nice and try mm -hmm. to make it look like the fortress is holding this thing up so i've been having a lot of fun with that uh and it was it was a good there's a good stream as i was like you know getting opinions from the chat and and um putting in new new ideas and designing some stuff on the fly uh, i think it's going to be i think it's going to be a really cool farm the only challenge left right now is how to get the blaze rods out of there in hopper minecarts and stuff but i think we might even be able to talk about that later in the show today it's always my favorite part of the farm is once the majority of the mechanism and stuff is done i'm like how can i make this look really cool afterwards mm -hmm. it was the the same thing i did with my my dark room mob spawner on the survival guide world is just once i've got this enormous box in the sky with a little bit of redstone attached to it and that's producing mobs but it looks like a giant like dark room it's just a bit a big slab of andesite and wood and stuff in the sky i'm like i'm gonna make a hot air balloon out of this because i want to i want to have something that looks pretty and it's cool where you can actually have it look like it's integrated as a feature of the world it doesn't even have to stand out all that much it can just be like you said something that's it's attached to the nether fortress as though it's meant to be there in the first place that's pretty cool yeah thanks and i mean i have to slab the whole nether fortress anyway so i've done that and yeah. so now i mean i can go back and remove the the stone slabs and replace them with nether brick slabs and you'd never know it would just be all black right it would just look like a regular nether fortress when you fly over it and and i think that um by doing that i might instead of tearing down other parts of the nether fortress i might actually try to incorporate other farms that need to be there yeah you know like a, a um, super smelter blaze farm like there's a bunch of other stuff we could do in in the the fortress that could benefit so it's not just one farm like you could actually have have stuff going like if you're it would be so nice if you're afking at this crazy fortress farm and getting your skulls and getting your blaze rods it would be also nice if you were also smelting you know 
20 stacks of glass at the same yeah. time you know that's the that's the dream is like you stand in one place and all of minecraft happens around you and then you come back <laughs> and you've got tons of resources yeah. yeah yeah well you've been doing the opposite you've been you've been running around like a chicken with your head cut off in bedrock trying to achieve all i the really things. have i really have <laughs> yes so um i committed after the charity live stream i did raised a whole bunch of money to making an episode of Minecraft Bedrock Edition that basically turned into a week in which I tried to get all of the achievements in Bedrock Edition for Windows 10. Which I can tell you right now was a challenge, but not nearly as tough as doing How Did We Get Here in Java Edition. And a lot of people were like, wait, don't you have the How Did We Get Here achievement to do? It's not an achievement in Bedrock Edition. You don't have to get like <laughs> all the status effects at once. Thank goodness, because that would have taken a, a an insurmountable amount of effort, I think. But especially in a week. Um, but yeah, I, I managed to get all of the achievements. There were a few tough ones. There were a few things that I sort of collected as a series of opinions about Bedrock Edition, which aren't necessarily organized into like pros and cons or anything like that. Just some stuff I noticed. So I've got a bunch of things here that I'd like to uh, to discuss in a short form, I guess. Uh, for a start, cave generation on Bedrock Edition, from what I found, is really nice. Uh, the caves seem to overlap more. It feels like there are fewer of those set pieces that you always seem to find when you're caving in Java. Like, you'll go through a cave and there's, like, a sort of round room about maybe 10, 15 blocks wide where you walk into it and you're like, oh, this feels like a kind of opened-out section of the cave. And then you're like, wait a minute, I've seen the same feature of these caves before several times. And I feel like on Bedrock Edition, if you dig down... If you, if you get lucky and you strike cave, you're going to find a cave that you can explore for a while rather than in java edition where you find like a single unconnected stretch of cave and it's quite rare to find something that's just opens out into this rabbit warren sort of anthill thing of, mm. of caves so i kind of wonder if maybe java edition when when it eventually gets this cave update that everybody has been champing at the bit for which we don't think is really going to be coming anytime soon uh if potentially that can be on the list of, of making caves a little bit more interesting to explore by connecting them a little bit more. I found that quite fun. I wonder if the kind of jigsaw system that they've implemented for the villages in Village and Pillage could also be implemented for cave systems. I expect it can because it's all about just how features like that generate. But the problem then is having enough variety of the assembled pieces that it isn't going to just look like the same cave over and over again and get formulaic. Mm -hmm. Because if you look at the amount of stuff they've got in villages, it is the same bunch of houses and the same bunch of features, and they can obviously generate in a different order, but you're always coming across the same stuff over and over again. Yeah. So I'm, I'm kind of interested to see what they can do about that, because when I was caving, I, was, I had a set of caves that I fought the wither in, which I will get to in a second, but that was a really clustered section of caves where I walked out into an expansive space and there were maybe like 10 different directions I could have gone in. And I don't think I've really seen that kind of cave in Java for a while. Maybe I just didn't get lucky, but there are very few cave experiences like that in, in Java edition. On the flip side, overworld terrain generation in Bedrock Edition feels weird when you've been playing Java because Java has a system by which biomes of a similar temperature like warm biomes like jungles and savannas and stuff like that will usually generate next to each other whereas in bedrock that doesn't seem to be the case or maybe it was just the world seed i was using but i found jungles sharing borders with snowy tigers and frozen oceans and stuff that just didn't feel at all logical for the way the world is uh, the way i'm used to having the world generate so i don't know if they ever 
implemented that system or not, but even so, it did feel a little bit incongruous traveling from a cold biome to a hot biome just like that. And it meant that it was less reliable for me finding deserts when I needed to get, like, cactus for green dye. Um, I didn't quite know where to find deserts, and eventually I found one just by, like, traveling over an ocean until I ran into a desert island, but it was a little bit confusing to me finding that. Um, there are, of course, well-documented problems with mob spawning in Bedrock Edition, and I can back that up by telling you mob spawning is awful. <laughs> I, I spent hours just waiting for a llama to pop up in a mountain biome, because there's an achievement for guiding five llamas using, like, that caravan effect you get where you mm. attach a lead to one, and then the other llamas just kind of, like, tack onto the back of it. I waited hours, one llama spawned, I had to kill a wandering trader to get two llamas from him, and then it was another couple of hours waiting for another llama to spawn so I could breed those two and get five, because you can't breed the wandering trader's llamas, you can only ride them. So... It took absolutely ages, and in Java Edition, llamas will pack spawn basically as soon as a mountain biome generates. There's like four or five of them just hanging out. In Bedrock Edition, that just doesn't seem to be the case. Um, I had one point where I needed to start a raid, and I found two pillager captains in a watchtower. They both shot each other, and I couldn't get Bad Omen, and I had no idea if they were going to respawn, <laughs> because they just didn't seem to be spawning anywhere else. I went away, I came back. Normally, if you do that in Java Edition, everything around that area has despawned, and then when you come back into range, it respawns. That's not how it works in Bedrock Edition. So, yeah, I was genuinely concerned that I was going to have to go and find another pillager outpost in order to trigger a raid. Mob I, AI is, is also I, a little bit weird. I understand that... I understand that. I mean, Bedrock is coded different. Like, I get, I get that yeah. there's some restrictions there, but when it's a feature, like when it's a way that things behave, yeah, surely that can be coded just in a different language to do the same thing. Do you under, do you know why they would make it different? Like, you know, why mobs behave so differently in in Bedrock compared to Java? I have no idea, and it's something that the Bedrock community, especially those who are more familiar with Java as well, have noted recently. Silent Whisperer has a really great video about this where he points out that Bedrock Edition mobs will only despawn if there is player-created light in the area where they are, and then that's what causes them to despawn, which... You know, in Java Edition, player-created light blocks mobs from spawning in the first place, but in Bedrock Edition, it genuinely seems like unless you put a torch down there, that zombie, drowned, ghast, whatever, is going to remain there for the foreseeable future. And that block spawns anywhere else in the world, and that has all kinds of other repercussions which allow, you know, which, which prevent Bedrock players from really relying on those mechanics for mob spawning stuff. And I don't know why that is. It may be that it's slightly more efficient to code it that way, and the game has to process less stuff if it just kind of assumes that, oh, well, those mobs are just going to stay there because the player doesn't want to use that area to build in and get rid of them by placing lights down. But to me, it just comes across as a really weird way of doing things and a way that makes mechanics elsewhere in the game completely unreliable for players who know what they're doing mm -hmm. so it's unfortunate that um mob ai like i said seems kind of weird like creepers and zombies don't start tracking you until you're a few steps away i'm used to zombies coming at me from like 40 blocks away in java right i had to w wave my hand in front of their faces to get them to follow me on on bedrock so that's a little strange um speaking of mobs though the wither fight is, as advertised, fiendishly difficult. And it mostly comes down to health regen being slightly slower 
on Bedrock, normally in Java, if you fill up your hunger bar, you get like an instant couple of hearts back, basically. Right. Um, on, on Bedrock, that still seems to be a little bit slower, kind of like it used to be where you ate food and your your health bar just kind of like slowly refilled over time instead of having like a panic heal, basically. Um, and the wither effect, it's wither two for like 40 seconds. And you can't heal from that just by eating like you can in Java Edition. You need to have a bucket of milk to get rid of it totems of undying or a ton of health and regen potions so that fight is a fight for your life if you get withered once you have to immediately take action to dispel the effect or you are going to die which is totally different to the java wither fight and the wither has this dash attack that it does once it gets to the second stage where it dashes towards the player sometimes past the player and it just breaks huge quantities of blocks. It's like if the Ender Dragon just flew through an area that wasn't made of endstone. It right. just eliminates all the blocks there, but it breaks them instead of just destroying them. Like they actually drop as blocks. So immediately I'm trying to manage my inventory and my inventory is full of cobblestone and diorite. Right. <laughs> and it's it's just nuts. So that fight becomes difficult almost mechanically because of the amount of stuff the wither is now dumping in your inventory as well. It inventory blocks you somehow, which is is nuts. Um, but I eventually managed to take down the wither, which is good because there are three achievements linked to that fight. You need to spawn it, you need to kill it, and you need to make a beacon. So eventually I took down the wither, but I have a new respect for bedrock players, especially anyone who does that fight on mobile and still lives. Y'all are crazy. <laughs> like, well done if you've done that on mobile because that just seems like... An insurmountable obstacle if you're playing using like a touch-based interface. You must be a lot more dexterous than I am. But uh, I'm glad I've done that, at least, because now I know what all the fuss was about. Um, that is made up for by how easy raids were. There were very few pillagers, it seemed like. Maybe I was just used to raid mechanics at that point, but I felt a lot less threatened. Maybe the, the pillager AI was just a little bit more ropey, kind of like the zombie one, but I didn't really feel under threat at all except for one point where one wave of the raid spawned in a cave underneath the village and i had to go and find them <laughs> so that was a little bit of quirky uh raid generation there but overall they were a lot easier um and the most grindy achievement of the whole thing was probably trading for 1000 emeralds so you have to acquire 1000 em you don't have to have them all in your inventory or in a chest or anything you can just trade them over time and it will track how many things you've bought or, or like sold to the villagers for emeralds but it turns out that's pretty easy with a handful of farmers and a melon farm so that's that's okay it just took a fair amount of time overall it took me uh 35 hours over the last week in order to uh to get 100 percent of the achievements and a few of them took a while to to pop there were a couple of things that required you to fly through a one by one gap using elytra that took a little while to register that i'd done it um, and so several attempts at that was kind of, you know, I, I wasn't sure whether it was going to work or not if the achievement was just bugged out, but I was quite pleased that I'd, I'd managed to do it. There's a few things I really like about Bedrock Edition, though. Um, the way cauldrons are used in dying and potion brewing is really nice, and, and that you can use potions in cauldrons to tip arrows and stuff like that. That's stuff that I really wish was in Java Edition, really. Right. And the stuff that I think Bedrock needs, like subtitles doesn't have subtitles anywhere and i i don't rely on them at all i'm not somebody who needs subtitles to play but they have been you know a very helpful resource when i've been caving and when i've been trying to tell which direction a sound is coming from you know that we had that email last week about the directionality of sound right 
I have a feeling that person is a Bedrock Edition player, because that seemed a much less reliable thing on the Bedrock Edition of the game than it did in Java. Ah. And I was playing with headphones the entire time, uh, except maybe a couple of streams. So I kind of feel like maybe they were playing in Bedrock Edition and they don't have the intense stereo effect that that we have in java because i couldn't always tell what direction mob sounds were coming from on bedrock so maybe that's something that needs to be refined a little bit as well i also really missed having cinematic camera and the functionality that the offhand does in java edition because bedrock edition you can hold maps you can hold fireworks in the offhand but not use them and you can hold a shield which is pretty much the only functional thing that you can use from the offhand you can't put torches in it to place them on cave walls you can't even swap stuff to the offhand by pressing the f key you have to go and open your inventory and put your shield there and then once the shield is in your inventory it doesn't show up next to the hotbar the way it does in java so you have no idea how much durability your shield has left until you open your inventory and take a look at the item the so fact, it, the fact that you can't put strange. torches in your offhand that's enough for me to just not play bedrock yeah, it's no, like, nope. I, I, I can see why. And some, some people are so used to those mechanics from Java Edition that it would be a real shock to the system. The only thing I tend to have in my offhand most of the time is a shield anyway, so I was kind of fine with that. But yeah, there are some, some oddities in Bedrock Edition that if they are looking at more of the parity of mechanics and stuff, uh, combining, you know, they, they've, they've recently kind of ported some of the stuff to Java Edition, which we're going to talk a bit more about in the in the news that I really feel like Bedrock Edition needs another pass because more and more people are potentially going to be playing it on Windows 10, mm. especially when the RTX compatibility comes out and we get ray tracing shaders in Bedrock Edition almost by default for people who have compatible graphics cards. I think more people are going to come to the Windows 10 edition just to check that out. And if you don't have an experience that they like at that point, they're probably going to go back to playing Java Edition. Yeah, I I still I mean I I generally watch, you know, a lot of your survival guide videos, but I have to confess I basically tuned out this week. I was just like I I don't I don't have any interest in Bedrock, so like I just it's even watching it I find it jarring. Uh yep. so I tip my hat to you for doing the full achievement run in it yeah. because it must at some point like did you get used to it or were you just constantly frustrated and constantly like java brained the whole time? Let me tell you, it is 95% the same game. That's the thing that I think people tend to forget. They expect Bedrock to be this completely different experience, but it's really not. Once you get used to the fact that the crafting interface looks a little bit different, and it's displaying the number of items that you can craft uh, in, in the kind of like recipe book section of it, rather than explaining like how much of each item you have and stuff, it's it takes a little bit of getting used to, but then it is... For the majority of it, the same game. Obviously, like the progression is the same, the stuff that you need to get is the same, all of the resources are basically the same. A few things act a little bit differently, and so it feels like you're playing this bizarro version of Minecraft where things just aren't quite right, but you can't quite put your finger on what's wrong. Mm. And overall, I think Java players overemphasize how different Bedrock is. It really doesn't feel like much of the a, a different game, but then it totally depends on what you're trying to get out of it. Because I was so focused on achievements and achieving things that they have set out for you to do in Bedrock Edition, I really didn't feel the difference all that keenly. Whereas if you are somebody who prefers the technical side of the game and wants to make resource farms, obviously there are some restrictions on that in Bedrock Edition, just, you know, not necessarily by design, but just as a, a matter of how the game is different. And that's where I expect people will find more of a, a difference there. Hmm. But 
by and large, I had fun because it felt like the majority of it was the same game, and I was having a guided experience through trying to get all of the achievements. So did you if, did you do all this from a dirt hut, or did you build yourself something cool? Didn't even build a house, Joel. Didn't even <laughs> build a house. I I didn't need to. That was the thing. I. I spent most of my time, I, I lit up a, a small area around the area that I'd kind of marked out as my spawn point. I had a little lake that I was making farmland around and that kind of stuff. Cured a few zombie villagers around there. They had a better house than I did <laughs> because I, ultimately I wasn't particularly threatened by anything in the overworld as far as mob spawning was concerned. I just had a place where I could go and sleep to skip the night if I wanted to. And half the time I wasn't skipping the night because it was helpful to have stuff like bones and gunpowder for fireworks later on and bone meal for the crops. And, you know, I, I didn't really need to. I, a couple of times I slept in a house in one of the villages I found because I needed to do a ton of trading with villagers. So it made sense. But I didn't need to do any building. There are no achievements really related to build a house because Minecraft doesn't really give you any definition of what a house is. Mm. A house is what you make of it. So I didn't feel the need to actually make a base of sorts beyond this is where my enchanting set up a small animal farm, some crops, and anything else I need is accessible from here. Did you, I mean, obviously, I guess in terms of the achievements, you would have had to fight the dragon? Yep, did that. That fight was... It was, it was kind of more... Um, more how I expected the dragon fight to be in Java. The fight in Java has been bugged recently where the, the dragon won't swoop down towards right. you or anything. That is still there in Bedrock Edition because whatever bug is affecting the dragon's AI just doesn't exist in Bedrock Edition. So the fight was fine. The only weird thing about it was the bow, like the angle of fire from a bow feels slightly different. And so I had to adjust a little bit to that. I, it was like I was aiming above the towers to shoot at the end crystals, like I'm used to the arc that the arrow takes in Java right. Edition. Mm -hmm. Completely different on Bedrock Edition. I was firing right over it. So that, if anything, felt like the challenging part was adjusting how I aim, <laughs> how I'm so used to aiming, having played Minecraft for so long. Hmm. It, it, that, that was really the only problem. People say the dragon fight in Bedrock is difficult. I think it's difficult because they're playing with a limited control interface. They're playing with a controller. They're playing with you know touch-based uh, yeah on a, on a mobile device but with keyboard and mouse totally fine i could run away from the dragon's breath i could walk up to the bedrock portal and hit it it's the same fight effectively it's what the fight should be in java edition right now right but not nowhere near the the difference that you experienced with the uh the wither oh no yeah the wither fight is is totally different the wither has different behaviors the effect is stronger it's just tougher because of that it wasn't even necessarily that the wither was coming at me and fighting me the entire time like it wasn't um it wasn't necessarily dealing more damage through actually fireballing me, like firing the skulls at me than it normally does. It was just that you get withered once and then your health is gone if you don't do something about it. Mm. <laughs> and and that it just doesn't work the same way in, in Java edition for me. Like the, the wither effect is nowhere near as threatening in Java as it is in, in Bedrock. Well, it's cool that you went ahead and did all that. I mean, of course, people that are, are curious about it can go check out, you know, your YouTube channel yes. and, and see the last week of uh i have of i have also i've put it into a handy playlist as well there's a oh, playlist nice. on my channel that is just the five episodes where i did the bedrock edition achievement guide and hopefully for people who want a guide to the achievements in it it's a little bit comprehensive it's kind of a let's play merged with a this is how you do it kind of guide so i'm not just doing everything in creative mode obviously and um yeah, it might get a little bit rambly if you're trying to just scan through to find out how to do a specific achievement, but hopefully people will find that useful or at the very least entertaining. Nice.
Well, speaking of versions of the game, we have a new snapshot that came out last week. Uh, Minecraft Snapshot 19W36A was released last Wednesday. This is, of course, for uh, 1.15 of the Java edition. And it was actually teased a little bit by Dinnerbone ahead of the release, saying tomorrow's snapshot will have a small surprise for modders should make one or two people happy. I think he was being a little bit sarcastic there. Yeah, um, yeah. But uh, to summarize on Minecraft.net, they say everyone can take part of our obfuscation maps, which should make your life easier if you're interested in creating mods for Minecraft Java Edition. Uh, what that means is the obfuscation maps are now published with all future releases of the game, an effort to make modding easier for Minecraft. Anyone who is interested in de-obfuscating the game and looking at the code can do so easier and faster. We're going to break that down a little bit more in our news discussion here. Uh, in addition to the obfuscation maps, parity has also been uh, added into the game as far as some new features, adding features found in other Minecraft editions like trying to sleep in a bed during the daytime will now set your spawn location bells will ring when powered by redstone the commands drowning damage fall damage and fire damage as game rules can now be used to prevent certain sources of damage in the java edition of the game sponges can now be dried out when placed in the nether so you don't have to put them into a furnace to dry them out and fireworks dispensed from a dispenser will now travel in the direction they were fired. So a dispenser facing horizontal will fire the rocket horizontally as opposed to straight up in the air. Uh, there is also a number of different um, bugs related to uh, bees and honey bottles that were fixed. Uh, and some of the other things that I thought were worth noting, there's a long list of bugs. Uh, as per last week, they said they were going to be focusing on uh, squishing some bugs. But the ones that we wanted to note this week were uh, MC117914, Entities crossing dimensions through the nether portal will cause tremendous lag. They will no longer do that. MC159370. Bees suffocate when against a solid block ceiling. That's bad. So that's now fixed in the game. MC159395. Honey level of bees hives does not increase as opposed to bees nests. So previously, um, bee hives were not operating correctly and they are, now are. Uh, there's a lot of other tweaks to bees. Most of the bugs of note are, are that are listed, sorry, on minecraft.net are, are related to bees or honey or the other similar things. So if that's your your game, you can, you can go read about them on minecraft.net. So one of the things that I wanted to point out uh, for the, the kickoff of our news discussion this week is clarity. And that is clarity of the message from, from Mojang. As we predicted, the info, the only thing being added to Java edition in 1.15 is bees. The rest is going to be bugs fixes was debunked less than a week later when they added features from Bedrock to Java edition. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like they said that the only thing that they were doing was bees and bugs and it's not. Yeah, I feel like these are such minor features that they almost consider them bugs to begin with. They're not like major additions like we have a new mob in the game, but it's still technically, yeah, you're right. Those are features, not like things that should have been added in previous releases and they're now fixing. Like, yeah, it, it does feel like a little bit the message they're trying to put out there is at cross purposes. I suppose don't expect this to be a feature rich update would have been a better way of putting it than we're only adding bees and fixing bugs. And and they may have also been talking, like I know that the minecraft.net post is specifically about a Minecraft Java edition snapshot, but then I feel like their language is flipping back and forth, being like, okay, well, we're not adding any new things to Minecraft, like all of Minecraft, you know, like, yeah. so nothing new is happening as far as bedrock Java windows is all concerned because bees are the new thing. 
but the the snapshots are specifically java there's you know these are not bedrock snapshots these are java snapshots so they just i really wish that they would focus a little bit and just get their their message clearer because you know it gets everybody up in a in a tizzy and then they wonder why everybody's like oh it's they're either happier or upset that it's going to be only a bug fixing update and then a week later it's not it's not a bug fix just a bug fixing update i'm quite happy about some of these feature parity changes i mean it's just like i was mentioning a little while ago about uh, why things are coded differently and what makes you know minecraft bedrock edition choose to go a different direction in terms of the features these are things that they're adding into java that just makes sense you know yeah. I'm, I'm excited about being able to set my spawn at a bed during the day uh, it's going to make the dragon fight so much easier because you don't have to wait till night for everybody to sleep in a stronghold, you know? Exactly. <laughs> like, and think, yeah. of, think about all the mini games on servers where you might lose your life and it's just, it's so much easier to just tap on a bed before you go in. And again, rather than waiting until nighttime and telling all of your server mates, hey, we have that data pack. That means that every, anybody can sleep through the night. So don't do that because I'm trying, I'm trying to play yeah, this I'm game. I'm trying to set my spawn. I'm trying yeah. to set my spawns. I mean, like that, that's a huge quality of life change. Same thing with the sponges being able to place sponges in the nether that are wet and have them dry out immediately and then pick them back up. I'm a dude that has a double ocean monument on my server that I have not yet attempted to clear out. And that's going to make that a lot easier. Yeah, yeah. I, I've, I was told that I could do that by so many people in my comments section when I was drying out ocean monuments or working on stuff with water. And I tried it myself because I thought I had missed that somewhere in the update notes. And it turns out you couldn't do it in Java, and so it must have been a bedrock feature. But it's it's good, and it makes perfect sense. It is like yeah, you know, mechanically very similar to how we are used to water working in the Nether. So it's you know it's something that should be in the game. It's not even just a quality of life feature. It's something that makes canonical sense. Mm -hmm. Agreed. So those are my big um, my big takeaways from from the news this week. I mean, do you have any big parody things that speak out to you? The parity things, like I said, the the being able to set your spawn is fine. Uh, I like the fact that you can have bells ringing when powered by redstone. That's kind of cool. It would be nice to do more stuff like that. I think the game rules about drowning damage and fall damage are probably going to be more applicable to things like adventure maps, where you're maybe trying to simulate an experience of a game that doesn't have fall damage as a component. If you want your player to be able to leap off a cliff like their Superman and, and fall to the ground, it's not going to make sense if Superman breaks his legs on the way down you know so i feel <laughs> yeah. like it's uh it's going it's going to make a lot more uh sense to have those things a little bit more manipulatable in game the thing i'm most interested in is the deobfuscation thing though so should we should we cover a little bit more about that you've done a little bit more looking into exactly what that means sure uh before we leave the uh the damage control though it's also it was pointed out to me in my twitch chat on saturday before i lost power that um, those are also great for accessibility so people that might not oh, be yeah. able to move the player fast enough to get out of lava or are often falling off of things because maybe the way that they have to control their player is not as accurate as as people that don't have challenges um then that would be a good thing for to to be um what's the word i'm looking for so very specific like maybe you don't want to turn off all damage because that's not fun for you but it would be yes. really helpful if you could turn off fire damage because you're not able to then quickly react when that happens right yes so that, um, that is that is a very good point the accessibility yeah. side of things is worth noting and i hope that maybe this will con this will um prompt moyang to consider splitting mob griefing out into uh hostile mob griefing versus passive mob griefing 
or at the very least at the very least that if not isolating the griefing style of mobs because i have had tremendous trouble uh, on my patron server where they are trying to uh, remodel spawn right now coming up with a solution that is going to prevent uh, the creeper damage problem without either disabling mob griefing or enabling a server-wide resource pack or not resource pack data pack that's going to stop creepers from damaging even players just kind of turns creepers into a joke that you farm for gunpowder at that point because if you disable the creeper explosion that damages terrain, then you're also disabling creepers hurting players if you use this a certain way. There is no way to have an explosion that hurts players and also prevents the you know the 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 destruction of blocks around you right without without disabling mob griefing, which then has ramifications for villager based farming and villager breeders you can't. Uh, have villagers affect crops at all sheep won't eat grass anymore so you can't automate the shearing of sheep that sort of stuff like takes over and yeah it's it's really difficult to find a solution to that right now mm. so i wonder if maybe splitting the damage types out into full damage and drowning damage and stuff they could also consider splitting mob griefing out into a wider variety of categories that would help individual players especially once again with accessibility and stuff like that in mind yeah and i mean and even for playability on community servers where you want more control more control is always good you know like th mm -hmm. that kind of thing is it's like a, it's like we mentioned before about uh volume control in bed bedrock you know compared to yes. um compared to java edition where you have a little bit more finite control over different areas and stuff like that so Agreed. i didn't i did a little bit of digging into the deobfuscation stuff because i sort of knew what it meant but didn't really and so essentially, uh, thanks to uh, Cameron and a couple of other people in our Discord, uh, I got a, a kind of a Coles Notes version. Essentially, the deobfuscation map has enough information in it to allow the players that want to mod Minecraft to sort out what the different parameters are and where they are in the code so that they can do so quickly. Previous to these maps being made public, players were looking to do it on their own. I did not get into how that's done on their own, only that it's a pain in the butt. And that's right. why mods yeah. take so long to implement and why it's such an arduous process. I wonder uh, if there's a, a certain amount of trial and error that has to go into it in the same way of like, you know, hacking into something by guessing the password. You just kind of have to go over a few variables and common methods of doing any kind force, of obfuscation. Yeah, yeah exactly. Scientific that, that method, that sort of thing. Like if I change yeah. this parameter, what happens in the game? And you have yeah, to wait exactly. and see and you go, all right, well, that didn't change what I thought it was. So this is not what I'm looking for. And kind of like process of elimination. Again, I didn't really get into the details. But yes, the, I realize that we sound we sound like we're doing a lot of guesswork here that is probably incorrect. But mm, we're just we, we, we're using what, you know, yeah. examples we can give, even if it's not exactly like that. But for the parameters in the game that modders want access to, Moyang is providing a deobfuscation map for that, which means that that guesswork is now gone and you can get straight to this map says this is the part of the code i need to address and that basically gives you the 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 decoder ring for like x equals y and when you know that you can then move forward and code your mod the way that you want the reason why the game of course is obfuscated is is to control copyright make it harder for things to be ripped off uh yeah. and 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 for uh non-licensed versions of minecraft to be out there and being run by people that moyang doesn't want running it uh, and, and so that is still the case. So the game is still obfuscated because my question in the, in the discord was like, I don't really understand if they're going to publish the maps, why do they have to, why are they obfuscating the, 
the game in the first place. But really the deobfuscation maps are just for a small portion of the Minecraft code that then allow modders to, to mod the game in the ways that players would want. There's a lot yeah. of stuff that modders don't want to um, uh, affect because then they would just have to code their an entire game on their own. And why would you want to do that? <laughs> yeah. like, the whole you don't, idea... don't want to like, you don't want to turn off gravity and clip through stuff all the time. You want the basic mechanics to at least be present so you can build upon them. Yeah. And, and cause I even find sometimes with, with modding and mods that I've seen, um, I start to feel like it doesn't look like, or feel like Minecraft anymore. And yeah. so if you can affect all the things at what point you're really not playing Minecraft anymore, you're just playing an entirely different game, at which point it's not a mod. It's just, it's just a, a, a different game that exists within the Minecraft code. Yeah. The, um, the framework needs to be robust enough that you can't just break it. Yeah, exactly. So, so all in all, I mean, it's a good move. I think it's going to encourage a lot more uh, modding and 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 increase perhaps even the frequency at which mods could happen. Because something that you brought up, I believe it was in our pre-show, uh, where you're saying that um, some or most mods right now are run through Forge, and so by deobfuscating the the code for modders mods could be run on different platforms and could potentially be running simultaneously with the current versions of minecraft one of the reasons i don't want to play any mods is because they're running on 112 and i don't want to play 112 minecraft like i want 113 or 114 mechanics for sure yeah and now you have mod loaders like the fabric mod loader which has been kind of coming up through 113 and 114 uh in some cases fabric was running in the snapshot versions for 1.14 so they are they are definitely getting on top of it more and if they've got a lighter framework that they can apply to it it's not necessarily going to be able to run the variety of mods and the depth of mods that forge had but once again this is a world i know very little about so feel free by the way folks to email us if you have some insight into the process of modding and how that's going to be made easier by this deobfuscation map uh being published because that's going to be great news for us and it will mean we can correct anything that we are getting frighteningly wrong in this discussion but well, and, um, and, yeah. and to to move away from from the more technical side of this because like as, yeah. like you said we're we're maybe a little on the fence there or a lot on the fence um one question that i had like do you think making the game easier to mod might mean that moyang would be a little bit lax on adding new things and and doing the kind of things that uh that the community is asking for because modders are going to be able to do it that much faster without having to go through the, we'll say the bureaucracy of, of trying to get it done through Moang. I mean, I'm being a, quite a bit of a devil's advocate here. I don't really think that's going to be the case, but I'm just like, do, do you think that's a possibility? But I don't really think so, because ultimately people are going to pay enough attention to what's going on in the vanilla game. And those are only going to be by definition features that Moang themselves can produce. Uh, so, you know, yes, we can we can let the modders do it. They've, they've done it before anyway. Like, the modding scene for this game has been alive since Alpha, and it's, I think it's, if nothing else, it's just keeping the modding scene healthy. It's been such a critical part of Minecraft's growth that it was a game that had a variety of mods that came out for it straight away, more or less, uh, or as soon as people felt like they could really dig into what Minecraft was, that... I feel like they are trying to keep that community going for the foreseeable future. They're recognizing it as 
a force for good in the Minecraft community rather than people who are just trying to steal the opportunity to make features. And I don't think Mojang is going to be relying on modders to find their next big feature because then you have intellectual property and copyright things going into it, which I expect Mojang wants to avoid. And the fact that they are, they're still quite, they're stressing the importance of their own property being at stake here when they've got these deobfuscation maps being published. And like you said, they don't want people just making copies of the game. So that is in the forefront of their minds and it must work both ways. So if a modder comes up with a really cool mod, Minecraft isn't just going to be like, well, that's ours now. You know, I think, I think modders will always just do it regardless of whether or not Minecraft provides a better framework for them to do so. They've managed so far. I think this is just going to make it more possible for the community to move on with what they're already doing. And I'd be curious to hear from a modder because in terms of the copyright of what you do, because really, I don't know how much of the IP you could really lay claim to if you're building it on top of the Minecraft platform. Because again, to bring up World of Warcraft, uh, add-ons were a big thing. Bartender. Uh, uh, there was a, I believe there was an add-on that was like a dressing room where you could, you know, see what a, a piece, an article would look like on your character before you decided to buy it in the auction house, that kind of stuff. That was all so long ago that I forget that in a lot of ways, those add-ons were then later on features in new releases of World of Warcraft. And I don't believe it was a case where Blizzard paid or bought you know, the the license from these add-ons. I think the agreement was that if these people are making add-ons and Blizzard decides to put, you know, the add-on in the game that they've made themselves, not just from copying and pasting the code of, of the, the add-on, but if they just decide to add that feature into the, into the, the world, then the add-on is just like, well, you can either use the add-on or use the in-game feature, whichever you want. You know, and I, and I think that that's, I think the I don't think the add-on folks necessarily got any benefit from that. Uh, yeah, I mean there there have been instances where mods have been incorporated into Minecraft. I mean, you look at Pistons, which were developed by somebody called Hippoplatamus. That was the the code for Pistons was given to Jeb for I think beta one point six or one point seven, and they were integrated into the game. And then that person is now credited under additional programming in the credits. I'm reading this from the Minecraft wiki in the history section about about pistons. Likewise, horses from Mo Creatures were incorporated into the game by Dr. Jacques, who coded Mo Creatures. So uh, they they are not above reaching out to the modded community if there are features like that that they feel like works for vanilla Minecraft. But ultimately, they are the people who decide what works and what doesn't, and... Mm. I don't think they are going to ignore the efforts of the modding community and just do their own thing, but they're also not going to crib heavily from mods and not give credit. I feel like they are better than that, and precedent has been set for them to be better than that at this point. Right. Uh, I And I wasn't... I didn't mean to imply that. Yeah, no, no. Yeah. yeah. Uh, the thing that I'm really interested in about this whole ease of modding going forward is that I have always been interested in modding in a way, or playing mod- modded Minecraft for things like say biome bundle or um what's the terrain open terrain generator like stuff like that that can improve upon what in my thoughts are some pretty wonky you know landscaping and stuff that happens in minecraft and just increase that player immersion and experience but i never do it because i don't want to play old versions of minecraft like 1.12 and then switch between that and then playing 
current Minecraft on stream. I don't have the time. I also don't have the just the brain capacity to want to do that. At that point, it wouldn't be fun. But if I was switching between two different world um, seeds, one of which was modded, the other of which was current Minecraft, and they both had all the same rules with the exception of the modded having the things that I wanted in it for, for, for the modding experience, I would be much more likely to to dive into some modded and explore and have some fun rather than just sticking with the current version of the game because the features are there that I want. Yeah. And it's something that we've, there's been that discussion back and forth over the years about whether Java is getting a modding API. I feel like this is a sort of halfway, like, compromise towards, okay, we're probably not going to be able to develop our own API for modding, but here is a major step that the, the modding community has already effectively made an API for themselves, or they've made at least a gateway into injecting mods into Minecraft. Here is something that will help you along with that. I don't know if that's necessarily how Mojang or the modding community thinks of it, but that's the first thing that comes to mind for me. Mm -hmm. Again, if you're part of that modding community, thespunchunks at gmail.com. Drop us a line, let us know what we got wrong, and let us know your thoughts on the deobfuscation maps. Absolutely. And somebody who dropped us a line this week, although on a completely different subject, is BigRex12, who writes the following. Hey Pix, hey Joel, I was just listening to your latest show on the sounds and soundtrack of Minecraft, and a thought occurred to me. On the soundtrack and music side of the game, how would you feel about a dynamic soundtrack that gets progressively more triumphant with the chunks you edit? A fresh world could have the same lonely, melancholy music we are all used to, but once you establish a home and change the landscape, the game takes into account the amount of time spent in a given chunk, the amount of blocks you've edited or placed, and variation of blocks to kind of determine what stage of an ever-flowing soundtrack you should be in. If you ever ventured away from that spot, the soundtrack would return to the lonely new journey tracks we have now. It would reward players with a sense of accomplishment. As they are entering a well-established portion of the map, the soundtrack echoes the grandeur accomplishment that they have achieved with their builds. Just a thought, Big Rex 12. I really like this idea. I don't know how possible it would be to adapt the current soundtrack this way because obviously it's already been composed. I feel like when you are creating a game, you have to go into the composition with that stuff in mind and to layer up the soundtrack from the existing stuff, you would have to do, I think, a lot of work and it would change the Minecraft soundtrack significantly. But I really like dynamic soundtracks in other games. And recently, I've talked about it before on the podcast, I've been playing Breath of the Wild, which has a great effect when you're exploring Hyrule Castle. Uh, it's basically like the last area of the game, although you can visit it much earlier. And it has this great effect where it's cinematic and exciting on the outside. There's this kind of rush and surging kind of brass section and stuff. Everything feels like a fanfare. But then when you go inside the castle, when you're exploring the interior or the dungeons, it transitions seamlessly into a quieter theme, like the same measures, the same beats of the bar and effectively the same theme but played on a different variety of instruments and the interior feels a little bit more kind of medieval and it's got flutes playing and slow strings in the background and then as soon as you go back outside brass section kicks in again and it feels a lot like you're rushing the castle now and that kind of stuff transistor is another game that does a really great job of this where there's a couple of boss fights in that game where the boss theme starts off with normal instruments and vocals and as you take down the boss and it transitions between different stages in a kind of like, this isn't my final form kind of way, uh, the vocals get glitchier and more distorted, the instruments start to break down, and the fight progresses through 
something that kind of gets glitchier and glitchier as you go and the music reflects that which is perfect i don't know quite how you'd implement that in minecraft especially since effectively if it's a variety of blocks thing and you know i said earlier that minecraft doesn't really have a way of tracking that you've built a house so you could effectively just gather all of the blocks and place them in a single chunk and then the game would be like triumph you've done it and you're literally standing on a mosaic made of all of the blocks in the game it's an interesting thought though i would imagine a way to do it might be to track the amount of time the player is in a specific chunk yeah, that's that's something Big Rex said in their email, and I yeah. kind of I, I agree that that's probably the best way of doing it. The game already does that with stuff like local difficulty. It will tell you exactly so it will up up the difficulty depending on how long you've been in that chunk specifically. Yeah. So yeah, potentially that could be a factor. That could be cool, and maybe not. I mean, one chunk seems kind of small, but like maybe a series of chunks. You know, so like similar to how like the game has a spawn chunk, you know, radius. Yeah, and uh, it's got regions which capture, yeah. you know, a, lo- a lot more chunks within that radius. Yeah, exactly. So having having a region or something like change, uh, I think would be really cool. What I like so much about uh, Big Rex 12's idea is the changing of the triumphant uh, soundtrack back to the original new journey when you go out and, you know, to a, an unaltered, you know, newly generated area. What a great way to kind of like remind yourself about what it feels to be day one Minecraft. You don't like to kind of yeah. like have that charming soundtrack going while you're punching wood and building a campfire and doing all that kind of stuff. Uh, I think I, I like the idea. I, I think to build upon it, uh, like you mentioned with boss fights, a more dramatic theme when you encounter a raid, a ghast appears in the nether and starts to shoot you, uh, or a boss battle, like say the dragon or the wither, uh, having those have their own specific themes i'm struggling to remember an example of this from other games for me i know it's happened uh i feel like maybe like rpg games sort of like um maybe assassin's creed black flag like there's a i think there's a there's a mini game within that where you have to chase down like a little thief and so the uh-huh. chase mu- the chase music it's like staccato violins and like you're running around the, along the roofs and you're jumping and twisting and flipping and doing all this kind of stuff so it's very different than when you're kind of like skulking around and trying to hide you know from yeah. bad guys and so that i always found really really cool uh and it's something upbeat like you know, like 60 beats a minute that sort of, sort of thing um but i know uh, especially because i have been watching a lot of um world of warcraft classic on twitch lately that the feeling that you get when you first approach something like stormwind in world of warcraft for the first time and the stormwind theme kind of pumps up and it's got like the french horns and like it just it's akin to that feeling of the star wars throne room scene you know from from um, a new hope and that's the kind of thing that would be so good in minecraft and even if they don't necessarily re uh compose new music the fact that these soundtracks exist and we only get two tracks maybe four i think you said last week yeah four in the overworld yeah so pick some new tracks that exist and just play them <laughs> just you know give us more of what is already out there and just kind of play them at different times have a track that we don't hear very often right now that gets associated with being in a desert you know even yeah. but bi- even biome tracks would be fun um yeah maybe a little bit annoying if you've got small biomes but but in, in essentially <laughs> it would be it would be cool like if you're going to be in a biome for a specific amount of time that eventually the soundtrack would change 
Yeah, I, th- I think biomes is another good way of doing it, actually, because maybe you might get sick of hearing the planes music every time, but maybe if you have the music at least be as sparse as it is right now, then it wouldn't hurt to have planes music be what we have now and then have the desert music be slightly different in the same way that we were talking about adding ambient sounds for different biomes into the game. That that seems like a, a solid idea. And the, the, the main thing that you can make dynamic soundtracks kind of key into is either player activity or visiting certain locations. Like you were saying with World of Warcraft, when you, you turn up to a specific location, the music swells, you get that kind of rush of, you know, this this feels really epic. You can't necessarily do that with a procedurally generated world unless you've got landmarks like visiting an ocean temple or going mm. through the end portal or finding an end city, that kind of thing. So potentially it could be linked to structures or biomes, like you said. There are options for that kind of stuff. It's something I'd like to see them pursue in future, not that I dislike the Minecraft soundtrack really as it is. I just don't use it in-game very much. And right now, of course, I don't think I would because I'm viewing it as a content creator. Adding music into the scene makes things harder to edit or it chops up the music when I do make an edit. Yes, yeah. But But it would still be kind of cool as a casual player to experience that kind of stuff. No, I agree. So moving on into the discussion this week, uh, this is something that I've been kind of bopping around with all of the redstone that I've been doing in the fortress farm on the Citadel. And I'm, I, I would consider myself a redstone savvy. I'm not necessarily a redstone player, but I'm a redstone savvy player. I can certainly copy someone else's design and also understand what it's doing. It takes me some time a little bit to break it down, but... Overall, it's something that I can usually understand. So I thought it'd be kind of fun to kind of bat around some ideas between two <laughs> technically not technical players. Two, uh, a, a self-confessed redstone Luddite and, and yourself, who is a little yeah. bit more, uh, more upbeat with it, yeah. I like, I like messing around with redstone. Sometimes I get stuck and I cannot remember the non-stackable item filter. So I have to go look it up. Like I don't, I don't have that kind of content memorized yet. Uh, same thing with flying machines. I know how to build them now, but I would not be able to just go build it without either referencing something that I've already built in my world or going to look up a tutorial again, you know, on, on YouTube. So I'm yeah. not, that's kind of where I am. I understand how they work and how to build them, but I don't always have all of those mechanics memorized so that if I wanted to design a piston door, I don't know how to do a double or triple piston extender. That's not just in my vernacular. I would have to go look that up. But I like the idea of doing that kind of stuff. And so often I'll attempt it and I'll say, okay, I'll give myself 15 minutes. And if I can't sort out a way or get real close, then I'll bail and just find a tutorial. Uh, And in some cases like Nembon's uh, item pusher filter system, I didn't have the room to do the design that he did. It was a string with an observer the observer triggers a piston, but it's a it's a three by two kind of setup. I didn't have the room for the pistons to hang off the back of my track. Mm-hmm. So what I did was I moved the observer to instead of being pointing straight at the string horizontally, I moved the observer above the string. Same thing happens. I just had to figure out some extra redstone. Now it's not as neat and as tidy as it as Nembon's is, but because I changed the direction of the observer. I added more complication to it, but I knew how to do it so that it worked. And it was the same timing. It was the same everything. I just kind of like altered it. And I was pretty proud of like just knowing how to do that. But for me, I find the most confusing things and the things that I don't do very often are using observers, 
uh, like sticky um, pistons with um, slime blocks on them, like to to move big portions of builds. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, And minecarts. Those are the things that I don't really mess around with very much. Minecarts, I mean, like, sure, I can power one and send it, you know, back and forth. But like, I'm talking about like having it spill up, fill up to a specific um, uh, volume and then then redistribute its its contents based on like a comparator signal and all that kind of stuff. I don't yeah. have that kind of stuff kind of like built into my my know-how. And I'd like to go there. Like I'd like to do more of it. So where where are you with like your redstone comfort level? Like where are you okay with doing stuff? And then where do you find that your comfort starts to really fall off? My Achilles heel is piston doors. I cannot build them. I do not understand that. I can, bu- I can build the one where it's just a switch or a button that you press on the wall activates a T flip-flop, which is something that I know how that works, and then two pistons retract or push into place a single block that's, you know, so, so for like a one-wide, two-high door, I can do that. Uh, as far as any other kind of more complex piston door mechanics, no idea. I can't make a 3 by 3 door to save my life, much less anything larger. So I have avoided making any kind of tutorial episodes about piston doors recently, and every time I hop into creative thinking, today's the day, I'll figure out how to make a piston door by myself. Uh, Because I'm very keen on doing that stuff because it helps me learn redstone rather than following somebody else's tutorial block for block and not really understanding how that works. But if I end up going into creative mode and trying to make a piston door... I bow out within about 15 minutes because I'm just tearing my hair out at that stage. And I don't know what it is about piston doors specifically that causes that, but there's just something about the way sticky pistons activate and deactivate that I I understand on a basic level, but I can't get it to do the stuff I want to do. A lot of the other stuff I'm kind of okay with. You mentioned observers. I've said this before on the podcast again. Observers are probably one of the things that has helped me understand redstone better rather than complicated it for me. And I think it is because a lot of the contraptions I was making around the time observers were released included what's called a monostable circuit, which was a circuit where if you give it one input, it puts out a single pulse, which in the case of monostable circuits, most of the time just means a sticky piston does a one tick pulse. It pushes a block away. And despite being a sticky piston, the block does not remain attached to the piston head. That mechanic is incredibly useful. And observers do that with whatever you do in front of the observer whatever you update in front of the observer it puts out a one tick pulse and that can fire a sticky piston for a single tick which will fire the block off the 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 face of it and it won't stay stuck that's really useful for a lot of contraptions and so anytime i need to do anything with that i find myself going to observers more and more the thing i'm starting to get into and the thing that i'm hoping to publish an episode on uh tomorrow is um minecart rails and stuff like that, because I kind of have a better understanding of how each of those work. Aside from just having powered rails, which obviously accelerate minecart movement, you have detector rails, which are very useful for either detecting when a minecart is on top of them, or detecting the capacity of said minecart, if it's something like a chest minecart or a hopper minecart. And then you have activator rails, which either activate TNT, if there's a TNT minecart rolling over them, or they... Uh, if if something is riding in that minecart, they push it out. They can also, I think, enable and disable hopper minecarts. So if you have a hopper minecart that travels over a powered activator rail, it will stop it from taking in items until it passes over an activator rail again. 
Oh, I'm fairly certain that's how that works. And that's something that I don't see people use all that much. It sounds useful in principle, but then there aren't really many circumstances in which you want to shut off a hopper minecart because yeah. you really always want it to be collecting stuff. So maybe if you had more precise goals for item storage in mind, then that might work out for you. And it, I think it stops it taking in items and even getting rid of items so if you wanted to pass over a set of hoppers without delivering the goods at that particular occasion if you want to have it build up a store of stuff using a detector rail to measure the capacity and once the detector rail detects it's got a certain amount then you activate the activator rail unlock it again and then have it distribute items over the furnaces or storage system or whatever then that can work out so i understand that i have yet to put a lot of this stuff into practice though and that's the thing i feel like a lot of people miss out on when they ask questions about redstone they're always asking about the functionality of individual pieces rather than how can i use this in a practical sense like i know what a redstone comparator does i know how it measures signals coming in from one side or another and compares them and you have subtract mode for comparators and so on and so forth what good does that do me at that point like how can i now use that knowledge to create something in my world and that's the stuff that I have struggled with for a long time because I'm not the kind of person who immediately thinks of redstone-based solutions to simple problems. For the longest time, I just used manual storage because it didn't seem all that complex to me. It didn't seem particularly time-consuming to me to walk up to individual chests and just put the items in them. And I can see how having an automated storage system just is one of those quality-of-life things that after you've developed a certain amount of stuff in a world... Sure, you've got a ton of stuff that you want to store. You can just click it all into a chest and it's gone and you know it's going to be there when you need it. But that's the kind of stuff that I, I don't... That doesn't come to me naturally. I think that's the problem with me with Redstone right now is that if I have a problem, I don't immediately think, how can I use Redstone to solve this and then work with it from there? Yeah, I find that I'm in that same boat where like I don't really mind going into chests and keeping things organized. And I'm such an organized person that I and, and creature of habit that I kind of prefer that. Like I don't yeah. want someone in, uh, someone's, you know, I, all items everywhere storage system thing to to dictate where I have to put stuff. Like if I don't really care for or need feathers, then I'm just going to put them in a separate chest, right? Yeah, and so totally. to have those kind of things organized, I find a little bit better. Now I do have a bulk storage system because you know when you have a mine and you've got cobble and stone and diorite and andesite and all that kind of stuff that you get an absolute ton of. Once I knew that it could be reliable. It was very convenient to be able to mine for 10 minutes, fill up my inventory with everything, and then just go over to one chest hooked up to a water elevator and just dump everything in it, knowing that the coal and the redstone and the gold ore and the stone and the cobblestone are all going to be separated into the system that I had above. That I found very convenient. But in terms of my building blocks, like I want all that kind of stuff organized in the way that I want it. I don't necessarily want to put all of my things into a chest and then wait for my terracotta to get sorted through a system of 112 items, you know? Yeah, yeah. Like th that's where I, I find it faster to just kind of do it the old-fashioned way. And ultimately, it comes down to play style, I think, is the, like, how how often do you need certain blocks? Like, if you don't build with glass at all, then sure, put your glass into a mass storage and just, like, dump it into one chest and have it filtered. But if you end up, you know, if you're in a sand, if you're in a desert and you're you're always building with sandstone, you're probably going to want to have that front and center as opposed to somewhere deep in a storage system that you always have to go get. Um, yeah. The the stuff that I am really proud of, um, 
I didn't figure it out myself, but I learned from Matcast. This is way back when he and I were sorting out how to do some things in our uh, villager trading hall. Uh, speaking of activator rails, one of the things that they can also do is that if they can power redstone. So when a minecart goes over an activator rail, it will activate redstone adjacent to that track. Yeah, yeah. And so we used it in a switch track. So we have the same single track that calls forth a villager and also dismisses a villager. So uh, we wanted to have a villager go over a switch track and go one way. And then when they return the other way, not have them block additional villagers. We want them to go a different direction. And so we had this one directional switch track that was activated by an actor rail. And, and I, I learned about activator rails then and what their potential was. Um, the two things that I'm most proud of in terms of my inventiveness, and I'm pretty sure that no one else has done these, uh, I have a double daylight sensor uh, clock for my melon and pumpkin farm. Actually, I think it's just my pumpkin farm. So essentially, I was able to tell the pumpkin farm to harvest at dawn and at dusk twice a day by comparing the signals of two daylight sensors, their outputs at different times a day compared to a hopper filled with X items. Now I don't remember what how many items are in that hopper. This is where I find comparators very challenging is that the signal strength from the thing that they're comparing depends on the volume, right? So yeah. a hopper, you're going to need less items in that hopper to get the same signal strength out of a, to a comparator that you do if there's a chest because the chest has more spots. Yeah, right? it's more like a, it's, it's like a fraction thing. It, yeah, it's, it's a like percentage it, of, of how full it is. It depends yeah, on uh, whether uh, the signal strength is one to 15, yeah. A hopper can be half full with two and a half stacks of items, whereas a chest has to have 15 stacks of items to be Precisely, yeah. Or, or, or thereabouts. My maths is hazy on that, but it's yeah. the same sort of... The general principle is there. So I'm, I'm pretty happy with this, this um, feature because there's no pistons. It's just the comparator just says, like, uh, turn the signal on here, turn the signal off here. And there's no T flip-flop or anything because the signal is from the sun and the sun is only putting out a signal strength of four for so long. It's not short, but it's not long enough that it's going to really affect your pumpkin growth, right? It's like out yeah. of the, out of the 10 minute day cycle, it's maybe a minute. So you're like, well, okay, so no pumpkins can grow for a minute. Who cares? The other nine minutes they can totally grow. And so I'm really, really happy with that. The other thing that I've done, which is, is, is something that I, I came up with is a, a tripwire hook enabled item uh not sorter divider i guess it, it's an item distribution system that uses water not hoppers and hopper minecarts so mm -hmm. you've got items going down a track and when they go through this uh water elevator they trigger a tripwire which starts a hopper clock which is pretty standard i think a lot of people know how that works um if not you can always look up an ethel hopper clock because i think that design hasn't changed for years. Yeah, um, yeah. But what happens is this piston pushes a block back and forth and back and forth. And it does it in a rhythm so that four, five, six items go one way, four, five, six items go the other way. And what it does is I've got one water system that splits into a fork into two and there's two droppers on one side and two droppers on another because my single dropper was getting overloaded by the amount of stuff that was coming out of my string farm mm -hmm. and so by splitting it up i can have four different droppers all shooting something into the same water stream and by splitting it up manually uh 
I can do that without having to rely on those weird chess mechanics of like if an item goes into a chest and there's two hoppers, it's the first hopper that was placed pulls the items first. So you can't really do an item splitter that way. And yeah. so this was a, this is something I was able to do without getting really, really complicated. And it just, it's just simple, you know, every so often on that clock, it just kind of pushes things back and forth, but the clock only runs if there's a constant stream of items coming through that tripwire. Cause I didn't want to have the hopper clock running all the time on the server. Yeah, that's, that's handy. And I think that's, it's the kind of thing that you don't see everybody do every day where I think, I mean, maybe this is just because I watch a fair amount of like, like Hermitcraft and people who make sort of high capacity farms and stuff like that. You tend to find that with the more technical stuff, a lot of the same designs get repeated and typically people are going for the most efficient thing possible. I feel like what I don't see as much, again, maybe just because I don't follow, you know, the, the, the right sort of people is people just coming up with redstone solutions to everyday problems and having everything be a little bit more creative in its application of redstone not that there's you know the the farms and stuff aren't creative but it's somebody else somebody else's creativity uh it a, re like. a really good person for that is uh, zf uh because we're talking about hermits uh watching zf on hermitcraft uh i think last season in particular he had a brewing system that was like miles <laughs> it was so much bigger than it had to be but it was fun because yeah, it, just, it was just thing. it was straightforward it was uncomplicated it didn't he didn't want to get too complicated with it so as a result he had to send items all through this crazy water system to get it to work because i think his goal was just like i don't want it to be complicated and i don't want to have hoppers running everywhere i just want to use water streams because i think with 113 you had like water elevators were new you had the fact that items floated in water that was new, and that means they could trip tripwire hooks. So those were the mechanics that he was playing with, just those three. And he was able to figure out, like, by damming the water and undamming the water, he could control whether the nether wart went in first and then the blaze rods or what, like, however he was going to do it. And I, I really had a good time watching that stuff. And it opened up my eyes uh, to... I guess what you just said, like to that, not everything that's redstone has to be compact, like triple observer, you know, crammed into a three block wide space. Like just because it's big and working does not mean that it's wrong. Yeah. Yeah. And, and people will often criticize. I think that may be the thing that's put me off exploring redstone in that way where i just kind of i play stuff until it's done people often say you could do this more efficiently or it could be done a certain way why haven't you done it that way and for me that's what puts me off learning and and just mm. kind of puzzling my way through it and building stuff that's big and quote unquote ugly but still does the job and makes it a little bit more fun i think Obviously, those compacted redstone designs where you've just got like a few observers and like a powered rail and a cauldron and a couple of pistons and that makes a three by three door. That stuff is very attractive because of how compact it is. It means you can put that stuff into smaller spaces and you can, you know, you can have it be sort of flush with walls and that kind of stuff. And people don't like having redstone trailing everywhere, partly because yeah, it's it's obvious how something is done, like a magician revealing their secrets. Mm -hmm. But it's it's also 
um, something that is potentially prone to damage by either players or, you know, creepers can explode near you and that blows up half of your redstone circuit because it's not covered up in blast-proof blocks or you place a bucket of water in the wrong place and suddenly half of your redstone has washed away. So I definitely appreciate the urge to make things a little bit more compact to use solid blocks in there so that you don't have to worry too much about redstone wire and components washing away. But I feel like that feels like a limitation we impose on ourselves more yeah. than anything else and i feel like i need to try and shake that off is where i want to go with my own redstone is give myself license to do something that's big and ugly and then maybe try compacting it from there but not feel threatened by the idea that it has to be a certain way otherwise people aren't gonna like it yeah yeah i'm looking forward to learning more about minecarts because i don't use them because they're not as efficient but right now i'm being forced to use them because i'm in the nether and yeah. you can't use water and i'm quite confident in my knowledge of water mechanics now in the game i love doing water streams they're so much fun it's just so cool to see your items being sorted around and moved and like it's such a visual thing and hoppers like you just you can't see the items going through them i wish you could right uh yeah. it, it like if if the model even if the model for the hopper had like a little light indicator and they would kind of blink in sequence as stuff would go through like even that would be satisfying right yeah but but with with waterways you can see it you can see the items zip along and it's fast now so it's very satisfying um so i'm i'm looking forward to exploring minecarts a little bit more because uh now that i i have a good handle on water mechanics i i'm realizing how lacking my knowledge is when term when it comes to minecarts well, I have a series for you because the Minecraft Survival Guide is actually <laughs> going to be doing... This is this is not, like, staged for the show or anything. I was genuinely planning on doing more stuff about mines and minecarts this week. I started oh, cool. off by... Um, I, I designed, like, a, a more aesthetic mine in, in today's video, and I think tomorrow I'm going to be exploring rails, and then I probably want to do something to do with roller coasters at some point, and, like, just a variety of applications for minecarts and minecart rails. In, interestingly enough, by the way, you, you pointed this out before the show, the Taking Inventory article on Minecraft.net this week is about the humble minecart, so it seems like a good time to get back into it, although... I am a little bit concerned because developers have said that they want to overhaul minecarts in future. And I think we've talked about this before, about whether or not that's going to significantly affect stuff players have already made using minecarts if the system changes dramatically. But they've talked about redundancies in the minecart system and how like nobody uses furnace minecarts anymore and that kind of stuff. So potentially this could be a timely thing if they are planning on updating minecarts at some point if that might be a focus for a future update if we hear anything about minecarts at minecon i'm going to be listening with my ears fully in that direction because goodness knows how that's going to affect play but it might be worth keeping an eye on well i think that there there's enough of a lack of interest and lack of use in minecarts in general in minecraft <laughs> you would think that they yeah. would be uh forefront that an overhaul would be a good thing. Even if they change things and it breaks a lot of technical stuff for people, I think that it just means that there's going to be a, a solution. I mean, we saw it when they changed the way that iron farms worked, right? Like it was a matter of days, maybe a week before the technical community had uh, ultimately a better and easier, you know, iron farm uh, built for the game. And I think that having minecarts changed will allow for some new inventive ways to use them. Uh, I'm not so worried about it breaking something like one of my farms because I, I like the idea of going around and seeing what's broken with an update and seeing what's what's fixable. It provides me with some stuff to do. Uh, I think for me, 
uh, with minecarts. I'm, I know that it has been replaced by water elevators in the overworld. So I had plans for a big minecart like dumping system where I mine and I dump all my stuff in a minecart and then it gets shot back up to the surface and gets put away in my system and then the empty minecart comes back down. I didn't have to do any of that because 113 came out with water elevators and you're just like, sweet. <laughs> mm-hmm. I don't, I don't, it goes straight up. I don't have to worry about a minecart track, nothing. And so I feel like because of uh, the water mechanics in the game, some of the usability and, and speed that you used to have only in minecarts has been surpassed by by water uh, and water mechanics and elevators. So I'm wondering what might be coming in the future for minecarts if they get some attention, what they could do to make them more appealing to players. Yes, as a form of transport, minecarts need to catch up, I think. But, yes. Uh, as far as the redstone discussion goes, just to put a button on this and wrap it up, I kind of think of myself as technical with a small T rather than technical with a capital T right now. I feel like I am very much working from the work of other people at this point, whether it's directly copying tutorials and stuff like that and or just taking inspiration from it and learning passively and seeing how somebody else uses redstone and then a little bit further down the line, I recall something that other people have, have done that might tie a little bit into the stuff that I have done, but I don't consider myself by any stretch a redstone genius. However, a couple of things I will recommend for people to do if they're interested in getting into redstone but don't know where to start. First of all, consider the problem first. Uh, Don't start by trying to learn redstone theory and what logic gates and stuff are before you have something that you need to apply that theory to. Is there a problem? Is there, do you just want a fancy door to go somewhere? Do you want a sorting system? Do you want some other kind of contraption? What's it going to do? Because learning about signal strength and redstone dust and strong and weak power and stuff is all very well, but if you don't know how to apply that in your world, it's not really going to benefit you all that much. Except maybe for bragging rights with your friends who like you know, (laughs) who like to hear you talk about redstone comparators. Fair enough. But I also recommend just use creative mode to try stuff out because doing redstone from scratch in survival, unless you have like a very minimal amount of time and you need to do stuff in survival, creative mode is always going to be better for that because it allows you to workshop stuff. It feels a bit more like a sandbox and you can break and replace stuff so quickly and easily without the need to worry about collecting the resources again afterwards or making sure that you have a certain supply of something that it's always going to come out better that way so that's really what creative mode is for for me at this point is testing contraptions and stuff like that rather than testing build palettes or sections of builds now i do my redstone work in creative and then i move that into survival and that's how i work with it from there one frustration that I have with creative mode for testing is uh, not with redstone, but with items. Like if you're testing item filters or testing for a lot of stuff going through a system, there's not a really easy way uh, that I know of um, that I have kind of like in my back pocket for like generating and, and, and not having your inventory get full of just shulker boxes that are full of stuff or, you know, it's so easy to duplicate items in creative that you end up just like with all this mess. And it's really, yeah. really frustrating. And um, I noticed, I think on some videos I've seen where they, someone will use a command block and the command block just generates like a metric ton of like carrots. And they just, yeah. they turn that on and off when they want to put items through their system to test to see whether it's working. They just like turn this command block on and it just kind of like spews out all these items. And I need, I need to have more of that, I think in my creative vernacular before I find some of my redstone stuff um, 
in creative very useful. I, yeah. I found it frustrating to test my shulker box loaders in creative because I was just constantly, they were always getting filled up because the shulker boxes I was putting in the dropper were already full of stuff, even though I, you know, <laughs> yeah. like it just, it, it, it's, it's not easy to tell what's what I find. I use the slash clear command constantly to clear my inventory in creative ah, mode. I just call. I always have that. And unfortunately, that has led to a couple of times where in survival on a world or a server where I was opt, I just cleared my inventory <laughs> oh, no. automatically after I was done building something in survival. So yeah, that happened, I believe, to a couple of folks on Hermitcraft because I think it was Joe Hills thought that that was how you cleared all the messages out of the chat. And instead of pressing F3 and D or whatever the shortcut for that is, he did slash clear. And then he's, he's an op on the server and he just like got rid of all of the stuff he was carrying oh no I felt, I felt so bad for him but yeah slash clear is a good one to know if you just want to wipe your inventory completely in a creative world and start from scratch and just pull stuff out of the creative inventory i do that even when my hot bar isn't full because i just can't be bothered grabbing a bunch of stuff i always have to start from scratch a few times mm -hmm. so worth knowing that one i think but i think that is going to be it for this episode of the spawn chunks thank you so much for listening folks you can find more information about the show and links to some of the stuff we've talked about today at the the music for the show was composed by me and the spawn chunks is proud to be a listener supported podcast if you get some value out of the show why not consider putting some value back in you can visit patreon.com slash the spawn chunks to join our community where pledging at any level will get you an invite to our patrons only discord chat get us closer to our milestone goals and you can join the community of 115 patrons who are currently supporting the show. Special thanks, of course, goes to our content engineers, Cameron Sigelski, JD Williamson, Llamas, and Yitz for their support on this episode. Sharing the podcast with your friends is the easiest way to support the show. You can find us at The Spawn Chunks on Twitter and Instagram, but a personal recommendation is by far the best way to share the podcast with friends, server mates, and other places that you talk about Minecraft, or as I always say, just poke a friend in the arm. I don't remember the names, but a number of the emails that we got this week would start off with, hey, I poked a friend in the arm. I hope they listen hey. to the show, uh, which is yes. very cool. I, that's 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 an awesome, awesome way to... to um, to chime in and, and let us know that you're sharing the show. We really do appreciate it, even if we don't uh, call it out all the time when we see it on Twitter, but it's, it's fantastic. It really does help an awful lot. You can email the show at thespawnchunks at gmail.com. You can also find us on iTunes, Android, Stitcher, and Spotify, as well as YouTube, if that's where you hang your podcasting hat. The RSS feed is located at thespawnchunks.com, and the patron-only RSS feed is on the Patreon page, and that's where you can listen to The Render Distance, the extended version of the podcast. My name is Johnny, but online I go by Pixelriffs, and you can find most of what I do at youtube.com slash Pixelriffs, where I attempt to make sense of this crazy and wonderful game in a series called the Minecraft Survival Guide. I stream three days a week on Twitch, doing behind-the-scenes work for that series, and I'm also the voice of the unofficial Hermitcraft recap, which you can find through a quick YouTube search. Aside from that, I'm at Pixelriffs on both Twitter and Instagram. Joel, where can people find you online? Everything I'm doing online, including my illustration and design portfolio, is on joelduggan.com. You can hire me there if you're looking to get some illustration work done. The Citadel Cafe is a podcast I do about sci-fi and geeky entertainment. That's going to be coming every Wednesday. And of course, I'm on Twitch more often than not when I'm streaming Minecraft. You can find that at twitch.tv slash joelduggan. I'm doing some extra streaming this month because it is September. Thanks for visiting the Spawn Chunks. The world outside is infinite, technically speaking.